Welcome to this message from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. City Bible Church is a vibrant community of people with one common desire to experience God, enjoy people, and celebrate life. We've been in a series for a number of weeks that uh, I think has had just a, a special mantle on it, uh, this, the Miracle Series. How many of you have been enjoying Pastor Frank's Miracle Messages and the Miracle Series? It's, and a few weeks ago, I was thinking about this, you know, the... There's just been like a special mantle of faith on this. And how many of you have sensed that? Like your faith level's increasing and you're kind of like, wow, yeah, God, I need to believe for miracles. And God does want to do miracles in and through my life. And you've sensed just the increase of our faith. And we're closing that off this Sunday. And, and I just kind of want to chime in with uh, what's being said the last number of weeks. And I want to talk to you today about miracle faith. And we're going to really want to talk about venturing out in terms of increasing our faith level for provision. Not just for our sake, but for the sake of other people around us. We should always have somebody on the horizon of our life that we're concerned about their life. We're wanting to see God work in their life. We, we want to see the gospel. If they don't know the Lord, we want them to come to know the Lord. If they do know the Lord and going through a difficult time, we want to see God's grace revealed. Are you in? I mean, that, that's the heart of a, of a true Christian. And, and I want to just kind of chime in with that a little bit this morning. And I, I'm hoping that you'll just open your heart this morning to allow a fresh stirring. And just uh, wouldn't want us to close off this series without us all just saying, yes, I want to believe for miracles. I want to venture out of my comfort zone. I want to get out of the habit patterns that I've had in my thinking. Like, well, God would do this, but he probably won't do that. Or he'll save this person, but he probably won't save that person. Well, he's met these needs in my life, but I'm not sure he would meet those. I think it's time that we... We kind of break out of that and take some risks of faith. I'm a pretty conservative guy, but I'm telling you, I'm here today to say we need to break out and take some risk. And uh, it takes a lot for me to say that. I like habit patterns. I like things the way they've always been. I, I like to know what I'm, you know, can count on and what I'm used to and everything. And I feel the Lord stirring me to say, let's get crazy for Jesus. Now, I probably don't look like I could say that very well. <laughs> kind of a conservative guy, you know. But So take it from a conservative dude. I think we should get crazy for Jesus. <laughs> we'll see what happens here. How many of you like surprises? Some of you immediately raised your hands. Others of you like, uh, what kind? <laughs> kind of tell who's the optimist and pessimist just with that question right there. Well, I'm talking about the good surprises. You know? How many like good surprises? Yeah, okay. We're all in. You know, it's not even your birthday. You don't expect it. And somebody gives you a gift and it's like, wow, that's great. You know, and it's good to like surprises. My question is, why do we get surprised when God blesses us? We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be all surprised like, wow, God answered a prayer. Imagine that. It shouldn't be so surprising when God comes through, when God does something unusual. When and I mean, he's... He's been warning us for a long time. He wants to bless us. I mean, there's a lot in here about it. Do you have your favorite verses that remind you of God's blessing and his promises? Well, here's something I think is important for us to just settle our faith on. And that is that God has both the power and the desire to do miracles in our life. We, we tend to believe he has the power. I mean, you can't believe in God and the creator of all things made stuff out of nothing without believing he's got the power. But sometimes we're not sure he has the desire. 
Like, does he really care about me? Does he really notice my situation? Is he really clued in? Sometimes we even talk to him like he's not clued in. We need to really be confident of this. We need to come to kind of a baseline level of trust that we can trust God no matter what. And based on that trust, then we can have faith for miracles and faith for God to do things beyond our, even what our expectation might be. I heard a story about a guy who's uh, hiking on a pretty well-trafficked path, and he gets a little close to the edge and, and uh, stumbles, and he falls off the edge of an embankment, and it's actually a cliff. It's quite a ways down, but he catches on hold of a kind of a branch of a little snarly tree that was sticking out from the side. He catches it, and it breaks his fall, and so he's hanging on to it. And he looks down. It's a long ways down. He's like, "Well, man, thank God for this tree." You know. He's, and then he's looking up and he's trying to figure how could he? He doesn't think he could scramble up to the top. So he's assuming, well, maybe somebody else would be coming down the trail. So hanging on to the tree, he's like, "Is there anybody up there?" Nobody answers. And he calls a few times, and nobody, nobody's coming by. And so then he thinks, "Oh man, I better ask God." He says, "God, are you up there?" And he hears a voice, and the voice says, "Let go." And he panics and he's like, oh no. Then he says, is there anybody else up there? (laughs) I know that's a stupid story, but it, it kind of reflects that attitude that we have sometimes where we're struggling to trust God. Have you ever struggled to trust God? Have you ever like, and God says, trust me, let go. And you're like, uh, I don't know. But sometimes God can't work until we let go, until we kind of give up trying to be our own God and our own resource and our own, you know, everything we need and or looking to somebody else. It's like when we finally really trust him, then God is at liberty to do whatever he wants. Sometimes the biggest challenge is just getting our eyes off ourselves. We get so focused on ourselves, our own circumstances and our own situation and the people around us and whether we like what's going on and all of that, we get so focused on ourselves. But I'll tell you what, if you really get focused on God, it's hard not to have faith. Come on. When you start focusing in on Him and saying, God, you're so great, you're so amazing, you love me so much, your word is so true. I mean, it, it's hard not to start having an attitude of faith when you get your eyes on God. Right. Now, I know we all want to see miracles. It's kind of a popular thing to, you know, want to see miracles. It's like, yeah, we want to see God move. I want to see miracles. How many want to see miracles? That's great. That's a biblical desire. But how many of you know, if you're going to see miracles, there has to be a need for them? So sometimes we want miracles, but we don't want to have any lack. We don't want to be in trouble. We don't want to have any problems. But miracles are usually to meet needs. God doesn't do miracles just for their entertainment value. Well, maybe someday he will. You know, maybe in eternity future we'll all be in heaven and God will say, watch this. And he'll fling out a galaxy and we'll all go, yeah. You know, I don't know. You know, maybe someday he'll just entertain us with his power. But if you check out the Bible, every time God did a miracle, somebody really needed it. <laughs> How can we expect to see miracles of provision if there's never any lack? Let me tell you, though, lack is not a sign that God's forgotten you. Lack is not a sign that he's not clued in, that he's not aware, that, you know, that he's abandoned you. No, 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 no. 
Lack is just a signal that God's about to do something. Talking about provision today, it's much broader than just financial provision. Now, that's included in it. But you check out provision in the Bible, and it's a wide subject. What do you need today? Maybe you need financial provision, but maybe there's other things you need. Maybe you need peace. Maybe you're anxious and frustrated about something. Maybe you need healing in some area. Maybe you need direction. Maybe you need wisdom for a decision that you're making. You know, maybe you need freedom from a habit you're trying to get free from. Or, you know, there's all kinds of things that we need. And God is our provider for all of our needs. Everything, spirit, soul, and body, naturally, spiritually, relationally, every area of our life, he wants to be our provider. The first time that the name Jehovah Jireh is used in the Bible, Jehovah Jireh means what? The Lord, my provider, right? Jehovah Jireh. The first time that's used in scripture, there's no money involved in the story at all. It's uh, Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham's asked by God to take his son up to the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain, he prepares and lays him on the altar, you know, and, and, and Abraham's doing this. The book of Hebrews says he's doing it in faith, believing that God would raise his son from the dead if he indeed followed through with it. But God interrupts him before it gets that far and says, okay, I, I know that you're committed, you're dedicated to me. And, and at that moment, Isaac's there, you know, and, and uh, you know, Isaac's got kind of an amazing part in that story. We always focus on Abraham's faith. What about Isaac's? He's the guy on the altar, you know. I mean, you know, and I'm sure he could have beat his old man on a foot race down the hill, you know, but, you know, he's there willingly, you know, he's there, you know. But anyway, there's this animal that's caught in the bushes, and Isaac says, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord's my provider. You know, he's, he's saving Isaac's life based on his awareness of Abraham's dedication. And we say things, you know, like, wow, that saved my life. You know, we don't necessarily mean physical life and death, but things that affect our life, you know, we, we're appreciative of. Well, the purpose of my message today is to stir our faith to believe God for his miracle of provision. I'd like to motivate us to get up out of our mental routines and our self-focus, and kind of venture out and take some risk by moving out into the realm of faith. Are you up for this? Okay. I'm going to do this by telling you a Bible story. Anybody like Bible stories? I'm going to tell you Bible. I like Bible stories. I enjoy telling them. I enjoy reading them. When my kids were little, I had so much fun telling them Bible stories. I'd get up and act them out. I'd jump up on the couch and be Goliath, you know. It was a lot of fun. One year, I purposed that I would tell them a different Bible story every night for a year. And that was easy for the first month. But about 300 days into the year, I'm like, okay, I've got to find another one. You know. But I never told them this one because the one I'm going to tell you today is pretty weird. It's a, it's a heavy story. Have you ever heard the phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures. Well, this is an unusual Bible story of a time when something got really desperate. And the reason I'm picking an extreme one today is because I doubt there's anybody here this morning who's ever been in a situation as desperate as these people were. And I'm figuring if we could find faith in the midst of this extreme situation, it might encourage us to have faith in our situations and the people that we want to minister to. Are you ready? Let's go to the Old Testament. This story is found in 2 Kings, 
And the, the bulk of the story is in chapter 7, but I'm going to start in chapter 6. We'll kind of ease it, lead up to it in terms of this story. It's the story of the incredible provision. It's an amazing story, actually. It's in the time of Elisha. Elisha was the successor to Elijah. And Elijah's mission had been to confront the false religion of his day, which was Baal worship. Baal was a deity, and it was actually a polytheistic kind of thing. They believed in many Baals, and each town kind of had their hometown god. And if you wanted to conquer the town next door, you'd worship their god and make him like you more, so he'd let you conquer them. And so it, it, was, a, it was a weird kind of religion, but it was incredibly demonic. It was very gross. It was sensual. It was, uh, there was human sacrifice of all. It was just it was an awful religion. But through Jezebel and Ahab's influence, it had per, been, per, become pervasive through the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, so of the, a few million people that were the population of that nation, by God's count in Elijah's day, the Baalism had been so successful in its promotion that there, by God's count, there were only 7,000 people out of a few million that had not bowed their knee to Baal. So the whole nation is just into this. And God sends Elijah along to confront Baalism. Everything Elijah did or said was all to confront some of the various beliefs of Baalism. Their various tenets, their various beliefs. Every miracle he did was aimed at one of their beliefs. So when Elisha, his successor, gets the mantle from him and asks for a double portion, and then there's twice as many miracles recorded for Elisha in the Bible as there is for Elijah. So evidently that's an illustration of this double. But the, the mantle was had the same purpose. It had the same focus. Elisha too, all of his miracles were to convince people that Jehovah is God and Baal isn't. And all that stuff they're teaching you at Baal Sunday School, you shouldn't believe it. Every miracle he did. Now, the overarching uh, principle in this or me message in this was that Baal is not your provider. Jehovah is your provider. And he run through all the miracles they did. And some of the miracles affected whole nations and other miracles affected one single person. God would provide miracle food and, and he'd feed the, his prophet uh, you know, miraculously. There would be an endless supply of food for a widow lady and her son. Uh, uh, he, he gave a barren woman a child. Uh, they both, Elijah and Elisha, both raised a son from the dead. And whereas in Baalism, you'd sacrifice your firstborn son to Baal. But God brought the Jehovah ladies, their sons, back to life. You know, God's proving he's the opposite of Baal. And on and on it goes with all the things that he did. He helped another uh, lady pay her debts off. And, uh, and um, there was a pot of stew that nobody liked, and he healed the pot of stew. Like, you know, one time multiplied food for 100 people. Jesus wasn't the first person to do that. Uh, just a variety of stories. One time made an axe head swim. The uh, sons of the, the school of the prophets, they were building a new dorm and they were chopping the tree down and the axe head flew off the handle and into a pond and sank and Elisha's there and he makes the axe head swim so they can retrieve it and keep building their dorm. Faith for dorms. Anyway, all of these things were to prove that God was their provider and not Baal. Well, we go to chapter 6. Elisha... Um, in this, at the beginning of this story now, there was a kingdom that was just to the north called Syria or Aram, it's called in some, in some uh, translations. And they were, the, they were like the greatest mercenary army of ancient times. If you had a country and you wanted to conquer somebody else and you needed some help, you would hire the Syrian army. 
They were the mercenaries. They were the tough guys. Well, Syria themselves was attacking Israel, and they were doing different military maneuvers to invade Israel. Elisha is the prophet at the time, and God would give him words of knowledge, which he would then send to the king of Israel to tell the king what the king of Syria was going to do next. So they'd send their troops over here, and he'd, you know, prophets just know stuff. Have you noticed that? Prophets just, they know stuff, you know. You heard about the two prophets that met, and one said, you're fine, how am I? <laughs> yeah, I don't have very good prophet jokes. Anyway, it, prophets know stuff, you know. So the king of Syria is getting all upset. It's like, where's the leak in our intelligence? How come every time we do something, they already know what we're going to do, and they're there to block the move, you know. And, so, and then he finds out that it's because there's this prophet down in Israel named Elisha who keeps telling the king of Israel what he's going to do. So he figures the only way he can conquer Israel is go get Elisha. So he sends his entire army to capture Elisha. They come and surround the town where Elisha is, how would you like to be in a town that's surrounded by an army and they're there for you? But he's got faith and his servant Gehazi is freaking out. And it's the, kind of a famous part of the story. You may have heard this part in Sunday school where he said, open his eyes, Lord. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes so he could see the fiery horses and chariots surrounding the city protecting. This is the same story. Well, Elisha looks out at the army that's come to capture him. And he says, Lord, smite them with blindness. So the whole Syrian army goes blind. Can you imagine the chaos and the confusion? The whole, I can't see, I can't see, well, I can't see. You know, they're, it's like they're all blind. And then Elisha goes to the front gate of the city. And he says, uh, open the gate, open the gate. So they open the gate. He goes out and he goes to the general. He says, uh, who are you guys looking for? And the general says, uh, we came for Elisha. <laughs> Oh, my sanctified imagination kicks in here a little bit, but I'm thinking he's probably saying, yeah, you can't see him, can you? <laughs> anyway, he says, I know him. I'll take you to him. And the king says, okay. So they're all going to march to where Elisha is supposed to be. And Elisha is, of course, leading this procession. Now, how does a blind army march? <laughs> they must have all lined up. I'm, you know, I'm trying to vision. I can't wait to see the real video of this. They, you know, probably hand on the shoulder of the guy in front of you, you know, they all line up. The whole army lines up. Okay, here we go. Up, two, three, four, you know. And Elisha's leading the, leading the parade. Quite a few miles down to the capital city of Samaria is where he takes them. Can you imagine him walking by the fields and the farmers are out there looking? <laughs> Elisha's going. <laughs> anyway, he gets to Samaria, the capital city, where the army of Israel is. He's like, open the doors, open the doors. You know, so they open the gates, and he comes marching in, bringing them all in. You know, like the, He gets them into the center of the city, and then he stands back, and they're surrounded now by the army of Israel, the Syrians. And he stands back and said, okay, God, open their eyes. And they open their eyes, they look around, they've been had. And here's Elisha over there. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like I said, we'll see the video someday. He single-handedly captures this army. The, the army of Israel is ready to pounce on their enemies because they have the upper hand. They're ready to kill them. And Elisha says, stop! You know, I guess if you capture an army, you get to decide what happens to them. I don't know what the rules are, but I guess that's the way it is. Anyway, he says, don't kill them. Feed them lunch and let them go home. 
So the army of Israel feeds lunch to the Syrians, and they're all bitter enemies. You know, they're sitting there eating together, and Elisha's kind of in charge, you know. They feed him lunch, and then they let him leave, and they, they kind of leave the city and go back to Damascus. And it's like, wow, that was a weird experience. <laughs> Elisha was so gracious. Well, this sets us up for our story because some time goes by, and the army of Syria decides to come back. And this time they come back and they surround the city of Samaria to attack it. They besiege the city. And this had to be upsetting to the king of Israel. It's like, you should have let me kill him when I had a chance. But, you know, they're back and they're not friendly. This leads us to the story today because in chapter 6, verse 24, 2 Kings six twenty-four, it says that Syria besieged Samaria. Now, a siege is a terrible tactic of ancient warfare. It would go on for months and sometimes years, surrounding a city, and they'd go inside and get all their food supply, you know, and they just... But the, the psychological wear and tear and the torment of it was just a daily thing as the people are outside waiting for you to starve to death. And one of you two things usually happened, you know, either a city would surrender or they'd go crazy. It was just, it was an awful tactic of war. Not done today, you know, we're not patient enough, but it, it, was, it was awful. To show how bad it got, verse 25 says, and, you know, pardon the reference, but this, this shows how desperate the times were. In the marketplace where food was bought and sold in the city, you know, they're kind of running out of beef jerky by this point. And it says that the head of a donkey was sold for 80 pieces of silver. That's quite a fortune just to eat the head of a donkey. And then, you know, pardon this reference as well, but then it says a small amount of dove's dung was sold for five pieces of silver. Now, doves aren't very big. So, you know, we're... Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> the whole point is, what if you went to Fred Meyers and all they had to sell was, you know, heads of donkeys and dove's dung and it was really pricey? I mean, you'd know times are really tough. Everybody got the point? Okay. And it gets way worse than this. Verses 26 to 29, things are even way, way worse than this. The king's out by the wall, and he overhears a conversation that lets him know that the people were actually getting involved in cannibalism. And the most extreme example of cannibalism I've ever heard of in all of human history it's, it's unthinkable. It's, it's just like, wow, that's even in the Bible? It's, it's, it's incredible. It's gross. It's unthinkable. And the king hears about it, and he tears his clothes. It's like, oh, what are we coming to? We're turning into animals here. This is awful. He, he can't believe it. He's tearing his clothes. He's all upset, and he's like, it's Elisha's fault. And he says to the executioner, he says, I'm not going to let the sun go down today until I behead Elisha. Now, the extreme of what he's witnessing and the buildup of all these months, and he just, he loses it. And he's after Elisha. Oh, you know, obviously, Elisha let this army go, and so that's probably why he's focused. But he's mad at Elisha. He's upset at God. He sends the executioner to Elisha's home. Elisha's sitting there with a few of the elders, and, and remember, prophets know stuff. So he says to them, you know, he says, the king's going to try to kill me today. In fact, the executioner's on the way right now. 
but would you please bar the door because I want some time to be able to talk to the king who will be following him. And so they do. They bar the door, and the executioner gets there banging on the door will bring out Elisha. The king follows. Some translations say it's just the king through his messengers. Other, it's the king. But anyway, the king gets there. And, and he's so upset at Elisha, but he's really mad at God because he says, I've had it up to here with God. I'm finished with God. I'm not going to wait on God any longer. God's not going to come through. You know, some people and sometimes some of us get so desperate that we kind of start giving up on God. But Elisha then, and now we go to chapter 7, verse 1. Elisha, with an amazing poise and calm, gives this prophetic word with the guy banging on the door. He says, Tomorrow at this time, food prices will be back to normal. Say what? He says, Tomorrow at this time, food prices will be back to normal. What? Hello. <laughs> food prices back to normal? You've got to be kidding me. Well, it's, a, it's an incredible declaration. It's just, you got to, you know, it's doves dung today and back to normal tomorrow. You got to, you know, how is that going to happen? The king's counselor who is there makes this statement. He says, that's impossible. Listen to these words. Even if God were to open the windows of heaven, it would not come to pass. Another translation says, even if God were to open the floodgates of heaven, it would not happen. Elisha says to him, because of your unbelief, you will see it happen, but you won't get to eat of it. That's pretty heavy. Well, now we get to the, the really cool part of the story. Outside the city gate at that time, there are four lepers sitting there. Now, a leper in ancient times, these are unlikely, but they are the heroes of our story. And I bet when you came to church today, you weren't hoping you could end up being like a leper. But I want you to be like these lepers today. These guys are the unlikely heroes of this story. Now, first, their situation. Leprosy, awful disease. It was not only hard to handle physically, no cure. They were like dying men without hope. But the worst part of it, because it was so contagious, was that they were social outcasts. And that had to hurt, as, probably hurt worse than the disease, is the way they were treated by their people, etc. Leprosy was an awful thing. These four men are sitting at the gate of the city, and my question is, why are they sitting there? Months and years before, that would be the place to sit. It would be customary to sit there and beg and hope that somebody coming and going from the city and traffic and commerce and all, and then so they would beg there. But it's been a long time since this gate's been open, and it's been a long time since anybody's been coming and going from the city. And still they've been sitting there starving to death. You know, some habits are really hard to break. In this case... I think we need to understand how easy it is to be imprisoned by habit patterns. Sometimes there's almost a sense of security in a habit, even if it's not working out too good. At least we know where to sit. Sometimes we want security so much we'll find it in a bad habit. Benjamin Franklin said, those who would trade freedom for security deserve neither. You know, I think there needs to be something happen in all of us like what happened in these lepers. 
they came to their this awareness. They were like, okay, we're sitting here and nothing's happening and we're dying. And then they said, if we go into the city, nobody there's going to give us anything because they're all starving to death. So they said, why don't we get up and move? Good idea. They get up out of their habit pattern. They get up of what wasn't working and they decide to try something new. And here's what they said. They said, you know, if we go down to the Syrian camp, because they for sure have food down there. If we go down there, maybe we'll find provision. I'm, they're probably thinking they'll sneak around to the garbage dump of the camp or something. I don't know what they're thinking. But they said, they said, look, what's the worst thing that could happen to us? They capture us and kill us. Well, so what? If we sit here, we're going to die anyway. Sometimes we need to get desperate enough to venture out. Just say, you know, if we just stay here, things are going to always be the same. You know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. So these lepers decide, you know what, let's just go throw ourselves on our enemy's mercy and we'll see what happens. Sometimes we're so fearful to move out of our comfort zone. Maybe there's somebody you've been wanting to share the gospel with, but you're just kind of nervous about it and you don't want to feel rejected and you just don't want to venture out. And you just, you know, well, hey, what's the worst thing that could happen? I mean, even if they kill you, you'll be with Jesus. Okay, well, that's a weird thought, but I mean, I'm not trying to sign up martyrs today. All I'm trying to do is, come on. Sometimes we need to get up out of the way we've been thinking and the way we've been seeing things and our fear and our unbelief and our doubt. And we just need to get up and try something. These four lepers, the heroes of the story, they get up from the gate where they are. Now, try to visualize them. They're emaciated with hunger. Their bones are protruding from their ragged clothes. They're suffering the effects of this disease. And they decide to go down the road to the Syrians, probably just, you know, kind of shuffling along. And so they like, let's just, let's just try something. Let's, let's just go. Let's venture out. While the Syrians down here, they're just, you know, kind of enjoying their food and enjoying their situation and, you know, just waiting for everybody to starve to death in the city or surrender. You know, they're just, they're just doing their thing. But as these four lepers come down the road, God begins to amplify the sound of their shuffling into a very different sound that the Syrians begin to hear. Check it out. That's what the Bible says. They hear this sound of a terrible army coming and they just freak out and run and they leave their food cooking and they leave their gold and silver and they leave their clothes. They leave, their, they leave everything behind and they run for their lives assuming there's this incredible army marching down the road. Now, I can't wait to see this part of the video either. Because check it out. From the perspective of their camp, it's like, here comes this army. Ah, we better run. And then who comes over the horizon? Four lepers. <laughs> God took the muffled shuffling of their risk-taking and amplified it into the sound of a victorious army. Just like God to do something like this. They get there and they're all gone. 
And it's amazing. There's food, there's jewelry, there's all kinds, there's new clothes. And so they go, they go to the first tent and there's nobody there. And they go inside and there's food. And it's like, oh, wow, start eating the food. And it's like, oh, gold and silver. Oh, new clothes, put them on, stuff their pockets. And then they're like, we better hide. <laughs> and they go and hide. And then they're thinking, maybe we could go back and get some more. So it says they went to a second tent. So they go back and they find another tent. Wow, wow, get this stuff. Then they say, we better hide. They go, you know, back again and hide. You know, some habits are really hard to break, especially the habit of hiding your resources. Remember Jesus talked about don't hide your talents and all. But anyway, finally, really cool statement. You'll find this in verse 9. It's like now they have the opportunity to save a city. And here's what they say. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. And they actually fear that something worse will happen to them if they don't go and tell those who are starving. Listen, there was a city that was dying, and they had found the provision that would save them. And they realized it's our responsibility to go tell them. Well, I'm sure they would have had mixed feelings because there's some people in the city that had probably been charitable to them, but there are probably a lot of other people in the city that had not been so nice to them through the years. But what did they need to do? They needed to get over their past, get over their present situation, get over the way people had treated them, whether they'd been rejected or not, get over the way their, what they thought was their station in life. They needed to get over all of that and they needed to venture out again. They needed to go back to the city and tell people, we are saved, there's good news. Sound familiar? So they did. They get up and they go to the gate of the city. Now, I'd like to see how this played out too because... They, they, they're wearing new clothes, probably jewelry hanging out of their pockets, probably chomping on a leg of lamb, you know. Go up to this starving city and say, Hey! <laughs> the army's fled and all their stuff's still there. Come on out. They take the news to the king. And he says, It's a trick. Some habits are really hard to break. Are you suspicious that opportunity is a trick? He says, no, no, they just backed off. They want to draw us out. When we come, they'll pounce on us and kill us. Some of his guys say, look, what have we got to lose? Let's at least go check it out. So they go check. He sends the chariot out. He's only got a few horses left in the whole town. He, he sends it, and they go check, and they follow the, the road from the encampment all the, the encampment all the way to Jordan, 20-some miles, and they find stuff strewn all along the way that the Syrians had left behind in their, in their flight. And they come back and tell the king, it's true. They've really gone. It's all there. And the people hear it. And the king's counselor said, even if the windows of heaven were open, he's standing in the gate trying to hold people back, still trying to control the situation. And they trample him to death on their way out to get the food. And the prophecy of Elisha comes to pass. You'll see it, but you won't eat it. Now, who are we going to be? The king's counselor? Ah, even if the windows of I don't think, you know. By the way, the next day? Food prices were back to normal. God can do the impossible, the unthinkable, beyond our imagination, 
What does it take? Somebody. It doesn't matter if it's a king or a prophet. It can be four lepers. God just needs somebody to get out of where they are, take some risks, venture out, and believe that he could do something with their faith. There's a, uh, a lady in uh, Redding, California. Her name's Ree. First name is Ree, R-E-E. Before she was a Christian, she was an alcoholic. She was working at Kelly's Bar and Grill. And she would often just drink herself into a stupor and her work associates some, sometimes drink at work or come to, drunk to work. And one night she uh, took some tranquilizers as well as the alcohol and it was going to be fatal. And they rushed her to emergency and pumped her stomach, did the charcoal thing, et cetera, and saved her life. And through that, she ended up coming to Christ. She got saved. Gave her life to the Lord, was delivered from alcoholism, still working at Kelly's, wanting a better job, but she's hearing her pastor preach about how God wants us all to make a difference in somebody else's life and how God wants to use us. And sometimes you, you got to take risks of faith, you know, and, and as a new Christian, she's like, well, I'm, I'm glad for what Jesus did for me. If I could ever help somebody else, I'd sure want to. Well, one night at work, there's a disturbance out in the restaurant side of it and and uh, she sees a waitress friend of hers helping a man to the floor who she finds out is having a heart attack. She's been trained in CPR, so she goes over to help, and nobody else kind of knows. And so she's kneeling down over this man who's, having, who's, who's expired, and she's giving him chest compressions. And then she starts praying for him. True story. She starts praying for him, saying, oh, God, oh, God. And, and the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, stop And she freaked out. It's like, what? Stop. You know, everybody's around. You know, she's trying to revive. The Holy Spirit said, pray. She got the courage. You know, by the way, courage is not the absence of fear. It's just overcoming it. She got the courage. She stopped the chest compressions, put her hands together like this, and started to pray out loud. How many of you think that took guts? She starts to pray out loud, and after praying for a short time, he coughs and sputters and comes back to life. <laughs> wow. Sometimes we just need to try. Somebody has a need and you're aware of it, pray for them. See what God will do. At least try. Let's... Let's, let's get up out of our perspective and out of the way we see things and the way we just, you know, maybe you've had a situation you've been praying for over and over and over and you've gotten discouraged because maybe that person isn't getting saved or maybe that situation isn't changing or maybe that lack is still there or maybe, you know, I'm here today to encourage you to try again. Pray some more. Don't give up. It's not too late. God can still move. God can still work. Amen? Amen? You know, the power of prayer is not in the person who prays it. It's in the one who hears it. And sometimes we start saying, well, you know, who am I to pray? You know, I'm not very spiritual or I haven't done much for, you know, who, you know. Hey, God can use the shuffling of lepers to save the day. Maybe we can take a little risk and see what God will do through our life. 
well, I don't know, man. I, you know, I, I don't want to venture out. I mean, what if I lose? You know, what? You know, I, I want to go out on a limb. Well, that's where the fruit is. I like a saying I heard: "Behold the turtle. He only makes progress when he sticks his neck out." <laughs> we tend to just pull our, pull everything in. Eh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And it was like, "Come on, stick your neck out. Venture out." Let's have some faith. Let's see what God could do. Are you with me?